0: 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll also use page 874, the back of the red hymnal, we say three questions and answers from the shorter catechism, consideration of the seventh commandment. First Corinthians six verses nine through twenty. First Corinthians six verses nine through twenty. Give your attention once more to the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Amen. Question 70 in the Shorter Catechism, page 874. Let's read the answers together. Which is the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment is... Thou shalt not commit adultery. What is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requireth the preservation of our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, speech, and behavior. What is forbidden in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment forbiddeth all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. We'll be focusing mainly on the last three verses that we read in 1 Corinthians 6, which uh, first deals with a bit of the unique nature of sexual immorality as a sin. And then the call from the Apostle To glorify God in our bodies and how uh, we do that. I grew up in the height of mainstream evangelicalisms, um, leaning into purity culture in uh, the 90s and early 2000s. I remember a lot of parents at the churches where I attended as a boy, uh, carrying around copies of the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye by Joshua Harris. It was a huge hit when I was in high school and middle school. There are conferences on on this topic, purity, and and the pursuit of purity. Many now, even inside, or or people who identify as Christians, even now are bashing this movement. Uh, But we should recognize that this movement happened 20 years ago or so, because Christian people... We're recognizing that our culture was becoming so saturated with sexual messaging that there needed to be remedial work to be done for the sake of our young people. That there was a dramatic shift in the moral and cultural and sexual revolution that was just on the leading edge maybe 20 years ago or so. Christians recognized something was, was going on here. We need to do something about it, and now it's, it's almost old hat for us, sadly, how shot through everything is with, with sex. I'm basically thankful for this as a movement, looking back on my own young life. It certainly helped keep me grounded in many ways, but uh, this movement, the purity movement of the 90s, also had some significant flaws. Those are being focused on now as people are looking back upon it. They're looking back upon some of the flaws. One of the main flaws that I can remember as we, this was always being put before me, one of the main flaws that I can remember was that uh, purity sexual purity was, was basically put forward as an idol to attain through our own efforts. It was not something that was presented to us as a fruit of genuine faith, right? obedience that follows faith and the power to do so given to us in Christ. In other words, the gospel wasn't presented to us as really the engine that fuels purity. Purity was often presented as an end in itself. Attain this kind of of purity. You are to to strive to do that. There were figures of the movement, like the author uh, Joshua Harris, who wrote that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He was put forward, and others were put forward, as the, the titans of this movement blazing the trail. Sadly, Joshua Harris has left the Christian faith. He's spending his time, his efforts now um, teaching people or trying to teach people. He gives classes to help people who have been, quote, affected by purity culture. He's doing kind of his own remedial work. And that shows one of the other fatal flaws. That these these heroes that were put forward, put before us, uh, had their own issues that they had to deal with. And you see the flaw now that he has left the Christian faith, and now he's trying to to undo all of the work that he had done. And one reporter commented as saying, the thing that's so ironic is that he is still the solution. He is still the one who is not the problem, but he is the, the solution. Be like him. That was the way it worked. The message was often bound up with these heroes. Purity was an end in itself. So the call, in in light of this commandment, the the call to be pure because God wants you to be pure is true in a certain sense. But it misses something so crucial. That in Christ, and the person who enjoys fellowship with Christ, the, the, the person who communes with God in and through Jesus Christ is not the one who merely thinks I ought to be pure because God wants me to be pure. Rather, the one who is in communion with God in and through Jesus Christ is the one who says I want to live in purity and obedience to God because of the knowledge I have of Christ because of my experience and love for him and devotion to him, it all flows out of who I am in Christ. And that is the the engine that pushes me forward towards this pursuit of pleasing God in these ways. And indeed, the pursuit to please God is only possible because in Christ I am already pleasing to him. That's the freeing thought of the gospel, that God has accepted me in Jesus Christ. And 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that. Such were some of you. Sexually immoral, adulterers, revilers, drunkards, homosexuals. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. In Christ, you have an absolute, unchanging, eternal standing where you are pleasing in the sight of God because of the Savior and that engine that fuels you in your pursuit to obey God in all facets of life but especially in in this facet of life tonight as we consider it when you consider it rightly it is a freeing thing and that's what Psalm 110 verse 3 says your people that is the people of the Messiah will offer themselves freely On the day of your power. What's so magnificent about Christ? It's that his people... So transformed and so changed... Give themselves in service to him... In obedience to him... Freely. Because of who he is... As our savior and as our redeemer. So in our sex crazed culture... The pursuit of purity can seem daunting. The pursuit of chastity, which is an old-fashioned word, purity, chastity, very similar. The pursuit of chastity in light of the seventh commandment can seem daunting, especially that last question. What's forbidden in the seventh commandment? All unchaste thoughts and words and actions. It can seem daunting, but we must first begin to pursue it By seeking to nurture our love for Christ. Someone who loves Christ. Someone who is devoted to him. That has a a vital experience of faith and and love for Jesus. Is someone who will be able to say not only God wants me to be pure. But will also say I truly want to be pure. To be chaste. So first considering the, the seventh commandment. The sin of unchastity the seventh commandment and and what it forbids it's appropriate uh, that we find the the seventh commandment where we do the 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 sixth commandment is a protection of human life the sanctity the sacredness the value of human life Uh, so it's all about the the value of human life the seventh commandment then gives guideposts and protections for that which brings about life sex brings about human life Therefore, the commandment at its most basic level affirms the goodness of marriage, and it, and it uh, protects the institution of marriage. Marriage is the, uh, not only the, the pinnacle of sexual expression, but it's also the only context in which it is appropriate to express oneself sexually. This commandment then also forbids the misuse of sex in all other forms and contexts, So it affirms the sole goodness of sex in marriage. It forbids sex used in other ways. And it also affirms the need for chastity in a universal sense. And that's important to understand. That married people who have married in the Lord and are seeking to serve him and love him and obey him. They are chaste as well. Married Christians are chaste people too. We often think about chastity... As a process that terminates upon marriage. You, you get married, now you're no longer chaste. That's not true. Married people uh, who have married in the Lord and are seeking him. Maintain their chastity in the biblical expression of sex within marriage. In other words, marital sex is pure. It is a pure thing. In other words, purity, chastity is a lifelong pursuit for the Christian. Your whole life you are to pursue this. In light of the seventh commandment marriage is affirmed forbids all other expressions and brings to us a universal call to purity but uh, we we may ask then this sin of unchastity and you think particularly of the way that first corinthians 6 talks about it that it, it kind of It sections off this kind of sin as unique in a particular way. And and you would ask, well, does that mean that it is especially heinous? Does that mean that there is something that is especially offensive in the sight of God about sexual immorality? And the answer is yes. It's, It's not a sin without equals. Perhaps, in other words, there are other sins that probably equal it in terms of its heinousness. Murder, for instance. But sexual immorality is a particularly, particularly rebellious and grotesque set of sins. And we, we, some, some of us may uh, bristle up at that. To say, well, can we talk about some sins as worse than others? Later on in the catechism, it will ask the question, are all sins equally heinous? Many Christians have been taught that sin is sin... And therefore, all sin is the same. Now, it is true that sin is sin, but not all sin is the same. And the catechism answer to that question, are all sins equally heinous? The answer is, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Something I'd like to say tonight is that adultery and sexual immorality like fornication, rape, incest, homosexuality, all, are all sins that, that fall into this category of being particularly heinous in the sight of God. Why is that? Well, in some cases, it's what a, sins, what a sin is simply in itself. Homosexuality is a crime against nature. It has been universally condemned by everyone in the Christian church up until very recently. It is self-evidently rebellious and a direct defiance of God's order and God's moral order. But all of these that we just mentioned, uh, homosexuality included, are especially heinous by reason of segral, several aggravations, as the Catechism says. What does that mean, that a sin is especially heinous? Uh, Sinful because of several aggravations. Well, it simply means that there are some things that people do that violate God's law in a myriad of ways. Puritan Thomas Watson speaks of, of this kind of immorality being a particular offense against all the persons of the Trinity. So he says this, the greatness of the sin lies in this, that it is a great dishonor done to God the adulterer is highly injurious to all three persons in the Trinity. First, to God the Father. As he says this Sinner, God has given thee thy life, and thou dost waste the lamp of life, the flower of thine age in lewdness. He has bestowed on thee many mercies and health and estate, and thou spendest all on harlots. Did God give thee wages to serve the devil? It is injurious. To God the Son, as he has purchased thee with his blood, you are bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. He who is bought is not his own. Thus, it is a sin for him to go to another without consent from Christ who has bought him with a price. It's a good way to think about sin. When you intentionally go into sin, you are leaving Christ, the one who has bought you. The one who owns you. The one to whom you belong. And without his consent, you run from him into sin. doesn't need to be a seventh commandment violation. It could be any sin that you go headlong into. You go there without his consent. It is injurious to God the Holy Ghost. For the body is his temple. As we read in 1 Corinthians 6. And how great a sin it is to defile his temple. If you are a member of the body of Christ, how can you allow yourself to be joined in such a direct and graphic way to sinfulness? There are several aggravations bound up with these sins. This is Christian common sense. And the Apostle Paul uses Christian common sense in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to tell us that the very nature of what we are dealing with, sexual immorality, should inform us of how precious and delicate it is. It's self-evident. So 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Many people today say, well, sex is just not really a big deal. You can do what you want. But how we are wired, our conscience Our minds, our feelings cry out against that. We know that it is a big deal and that it means a lot. The sin of sexual immorality is also a sin against the other person. It brings harm, guilt, shame, long-term effects upon the one who would participate with you, defiles and destroys and debases Watson go, Thomas Watson goes on, the, the adulterer not only wrongs his own soul, but does what in him lies to destroy the soul of another, and so kills two at once. He is worse than the thief. For suppose a thief robs a man, yea, takes away his life, the man's soul may be happy, he may go to heaven as well as if he had died in his bed. But he who commits adultery endangers the soul of another, and deprives her of salvation so far as in him lies. What a fearful thing is it to be an instrument to draw another to hell. Sin of adultery specifically reaches further than that, doesn't it? We read about that in in 2 Samuel chapter 12. So we're dealing not just with any kind of, of immorality here, but actual adultery, taking the wife of another. One of the most heinous things that David did in his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah was how directly he sinned against Uriah, wasn't it? He took what he had even though he already had so little compared to David. And that's Nathan's rebuke. That's the the picture that Nathan paints for David. It's all bound up with the experience of Uriah, what you took from him a sin against God, a sin against others, it's a sin against oneself. It brings a certain kind of, of sinfulness into your heart and your life. It's a sin which demands purposeful perseverance, sexual immorality. One must plan it, pursue it, think about it, continue with the plan, and see it through in the end. In that way, it's a sin that reflects a thoroughgoing corruption in one's body and mind. It is committed with mature deliberation. With all of those things, we highlight the, the seriousness of, of the sin. We read in the Catechism that not only is unchastity wrong, but whatever tends toward unchastity. What puts you on the path towards impurity, towards unimpure thoughts and words and actions? What is unwise for you to have in your life because it sets you up for some kind of sin or failure in these ways? This is a sin that begins in the heart and is pursued by impurity in our words and manifests in our actions. The Bible gives us several clues as to what kinds of things Tend toward leading us to sin in these ways. So the wisdom of scripture would tell us to keep a watch on the company you keep and the places you go. Keep a watch on the company that you keep and the places you go. Proverbs 7 says this. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman. From the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice. And I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youths. A young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner. corner, Taking the road to her house in the twilight. In the evening. At the time of night and darkness. And behold the woman meets him. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast. Wisdom, of course, would say certain situations are going to put you in other situations that are going to put temptation before you. What is the company that you keep? Where are the places that you go? At what time do you go to? Those places. Biblical wisdom is to be aware of all of those things. Often it's not hard and fast rules, is it? But it's being informed by wisdom. Keep a watch on the company you keep and where you go. Uh, Secondly, keep a watch on your eyes. The eye brings things into the mind. And the mind affects the heart. And then the heart then affects all that we do. Job 31, very famous Verse related to these things. I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Uh, In this context, as you read uh, commentaries, particularly older commentaries on the seventh commandment, uh, you will be reminded that things like stage plays, movies, TV shows, books, uh, all things that might put lewdness or lasciviousness in front of us as no big deal will have some kind of effect on us. Again, it's not a hard and fast rule. We shouldn't say all TV is sinful or all plays are sinful. We, well, we need to be informed by wisdom and to, be under- and to understand that what we take in ...affects us in certain ways, especially when uh, sinfulness is displayed as no big deal. There's, There's a messaging there that has a deep and profound effect upon us. It should also go without saying that the problem, the ubiquity of pornography... ...has put the church in a situation like it has never been before where people can be absolutely shackled in patterns of immensely destructive sin and can successfully hide it for decades even, always making excuses to themselves for how it will come under control. I got it under control. Keep a watch on your eyes. Keep a watch on uh, your attire, Is what you are wearing an obvious provocation for others? There is certainly offense given and offense taken in this arena. And that some people, often men, will find ways to lust after almost anyone that they desire to lust after. But there's also offense given here. And so as Christians, we need to understand that we can look well put together, fashionable, handsome, or pretty and beautiful without being unnecessarily modest in ways, uh, immodest, in ways that would make others tend towards impure thoughts. That's part of protecting your neighbor's chastity. We, have, should be aware, we should be aware of idleness. Sexual sin especially becomes a problem for those who do not remind themselves that they are called to actively serve God each day, that they are called to fill their days with work that glorifies God. The Westminster, Westminster Larger Catechism speaks of one of our duties in the Seventh Commandment as diligent labor in our callings. The one who is busy at work often will not have the time to sin in these ways. I uh, want to give a few thoughts then as we close, and as we go through these thoughts, we'll bring it then to the, the gospel hope that we have for we certainly need Uh, ...the gospel as we think about uh, a a lot of these challenges in our lives... and our culture in this age. So, six remedies. I'll move through these quickly, don't worry. Six remedies for pursuing uh, universal obedience and sexual purity. First remedy, the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.16 says this, "...but I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires of the flesh." John Owen in his great book on the mortification of sin reminds his readers that trying to improve oneself without reliance upon the Holy Spirit is both dangerous and injurious to the soul. It does not work. How does Christian obedience begin? And how does it happen? It happens first with an act of the heart, an act of the will which is humble reliance upon the spirit with a a direct act of the will saying that in our hearts we are relying on the spirit to fill us with his fruits that is where christian obedience begins and thus it must begin there that's the first remedy the second remedy is the word of god and prayer the, the catechism the shorter catechism will later speak of our responsibility to diligently use all the things that God has given to us why has he given to us his word that we might learn of him that we might grow in our knowledge of him and that we might live lives that more directly reflect his salvation proverbs chapter 4 says this my son be attentive to my words Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them. And healing to all their flesh. Let these words not escape your sight. Have them before you often. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them. Humble reliance upon the Spirit working in tandem with the word of God and prayer. Next, guarding your heart. Proverbs 4.23 says this, Guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Understand that when certain things find root in your heart, they will seek to manifest themselves in your life unless something else is done about it. So guard your heart. What you take in, what you think about, what you have as your goals. Guard your heart. The next remedy, the the fourth remedy, serious consideration of the danger and the consequences of sexual sin. Think about all that it does. It steals something from another. It defiles and pollutes. It's destructive to the body. There's physical harm it becomes a huge financial strain it destroys one's reputation it impairs the mind it steals the understanding it stupefies the heart it brings temporal judgments without repentance it condemns the soul Uh, when you think about particularly think of David in second Samuel and you see all the consequences he's dealing with and and you can see you know and this is he's praying and interceding for the life of this child and as he is laying on the floor through the night and refusing to sleep and praying to God, praying for the mercy of God, the intercession of, of God. And, and can, can't you imagine how David is feeling there and do you ever think that in those moments he would have thought, boy, that was worth it? Of course not. Of course not. Serious consideration of the danger, the consequences of these things. Fifth remedy is marriage. Marriage is given to us as a gift of God uh, so that we might be kept chaste. Those who aren't given the gift of singleness ought to pursue marriage. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. remain chaste so those who aren't given the gift of singleness ought to pursue marriage in a God-honoring and God-glorifying way and then lastly the last remedy is really the gospel remedy is that uh, you need to find your ultimate joy and satisfaction in Jesus Christ if Christ is the treasure of your soul If he is, as we talked about today, if he is the glorious one, if he is the Lord of glory, all other pleasures will fade away. All other pleasures will seem less important than living for and serving your Lord. The story that was true for many in 1 Corinthians 6 was that they were looking at the supremacy of Christ coming out of these lives that Paul was describing. So he says, many of you were this way, sexually immoral, adulterous, homosexual. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So many of them are seeing the supremacy of Christ In the sense that this Savior has given me a new identity, a new calling, a a, a new set of values, a new existence. And he has washed away the sins of my past so that now I am brought before him with willing hands, willing to give myself freely on the day of his power, to give myself to him in body and mind and soul. And it is my great joy to do so. And that's the great hope of the gospel, is that Christ comes to us as a, as a perfect Savior. And so for those who are mired in these kinds of, of patterns of sin, and in, certainly in, in this age there would be many uh, who are living these lives, shackled in different kinds of, of immorality in these ways. And they see the supremacy and the beauty of Christ, who washes away their sins. And 1 Corinthians 6 tells us unrepentant sexual immorality will send people to hell. But that which is brought to Christ in faith and repentance is washed away forever. And so the experience of those in 1 Corinthians 6 was truly they were bought with a price. Because they're looking at the way in which they had been imprisoned in all of these things. And Jesus Christ had set them free In righteousness to then serve him. So their joy and satisfaction in Christ was directly related to these things. So for them, there would have been a very clear and uh, present reality of finding your joy and satisfaction in Christ that leads you away from these things. Matthew 13 Christ in the gospel which will make it your joy to sell all that you have it is Christ in the gospel who will make it someone's joy to leave behind a life enslaved to any kind of sexual immorality to leave it behind and to walk in the freedom that only Jesus Christ can give it could be a young person entrenched in sexual temptation and sin in perhaps presenting oneself in a a certain way because it's the only way you think you'll be able to find value in this world if you become seen in a sexual way. Maybe it could be a husband or a wife addicted to pornography or a life of of fantasizing about other partners or romantic connections. It could be a a same-sex attracted person And that person can't find a seemingly good enough reason to not live into the proclivities, the feelings that they have to be active in a gay or a lesbian lifestyle. could be any number of things that keep people shackled in immorality. What will it be that leads you out from those things? And what will it be that keeps you chaste as a person considering the seventh commandment? What will it be that keeps you? It will be a love of Christ that makes it your joy to sell all that you have. In his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. He buys the pearl of great price, the great hope of Christ. His commandments are not burdensome. So we return to that example at the beginning. Purity culture. Set forth as an idol. Set forth as something that you need to. In a slog through the mud. And you will arrive at. Now there is work that has to be done. But it begins with love for Christ. If you are nurturing that love for the Savior. Then obedience to this commandment. Obedience to all commandments. Becomes something that is not burdensome for in your joy you will sell all that you have leave behind all of the sins that may have defined your past you come to christ in true repentance and faith you found the pearl of great price and you realize and you know that in his presence there is fullness of joy let's pray and so father we bring before you these things, difficult things. We repent of of not always fully realizing how darkened our world is unto all of these things, the things that can come into our minds and fill our hearts. And so, oh, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, bold repentance unto all these things and to see the glory and the beauty and the supremacy of Christ. Christ sets us free, and may we believe it, may we take joy in it, but we find as we look to the beauty of our Savior, may we find that these commandments are not burdensome, but it is our great joy to present ourselves to our Lord and Savior and King, the one who bought us with a price. We are now his. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Number 440, my Jesus, I love thee. We'll do one, two, and...